Good morning. Welcome to First Free Online. We're glad you're here with us today. Today we're talking about politics without losing Jesus, without losing our faith. Question to start off with this morning, and uh, you can put this in the chat or respond in the chat bar this morning. Here's the question. Are we more or less politically divided today as a nation? Are we more or less divided today as a nation along political lines. So go ahead and chat that, throw that in there, whatever your answer is, uh, and we'll come back to that question. As we get into the sermon today, this message today, I want to say this is not a sermon about what political candidate to endorse or how to, how to vote or any of those things. It's also not about taking sides, and there's going to be a temptation to try and read into things. Really what we're doing is we're gaining wisdom, as James said, from God and from the scriptures about really about how we're to dialogue and be in discourse about our politics. Especially as followers of Jesus, we're called to handle ourselves and conduct ourselves differently than the rest of the world is. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus today, uh, we, we hope you will become one. But even if you're not, it's okay. We are glad you're here. And we think that even the things that we'll be talking about today could help each of us, no matter what our faith is, in how we talk about politics. And so I want to jump into that. So if you were uh, chiming in on that question, are we more or less politically divided? If you said more divided today, then you're correct. We can see from the Pew Research Center that our nation has become more divided over the issue of politics and through political parties. And we've got an infographic here to show you this morning that shows you over the years how, more, how we've become polarized as a nation. And if you watch this infographic, you can see that we begin to move every year more further and further apart. This goes all the way back to 94, 99, 2004. And notice in 2011 is when the gap begins. That's also the same time that social media began to rise up. We'll talk a little bit about that effect as well. But no, you see that this divide's ha been happening over the past nine to ten years within our nation. And we can see that on issues like COVID-19, whether or not to wear a mask, those types of things. The interesting thing also about this division is that when you break down some of the statistics, uh, if you look at the demographic of 18 to 34-year-olds, 18 to 34-year-olds who support Biden in the election have no friends. 51% of them have no friends that support Trump. And if you look over at the Trump supporters in that age group, they also did, and I think we lost, you may have lost, there I am, we're back. The, uh, the, if you look at Trump supporters, uh, there are 38% of young adults, 18 to 34, are not, have no friends that are supporting Biden. So what this is saying to us is that, at least when, and this is happening in all generations, but distinctly in the younger generation, is that they don't have anybody on the other side of the political spectrum. That's the division. We're not talking to each other. We're not actually in relationship and being friends with people on the other side of the spectrum. Whereas before, in our history as a nation, we were. We had friends on both sides. We were more centrist as a nation. So here we're coming today, and we're looking at this idea is, what is our response as Christians in this divided environment of our nation around the issue of politics? So as Christians, as followers of Jesus, here's the place I hope we can all agree. And if we, if we can't agree to this, then we need to have another discussion and have a dialogue about it. But here's what I think we can all agree with. 
that our allegiance to the kingdom of God is more important than a political party. You got that? Do we, do we have that? That our allegiance to the kingdom of God, to following Jesus, is actually more important to all of us, to each of us as Christians, than our political affiliations, than our po- politics, than, our, than what we're saying. And what this means is that we as kingdom, as when we place our allegiance to Christ and to the kingdom, we begin to look through at the world uh, through two lenses called the kingdom ethic. And the kingdom ethic is this, love God, love your neighbor. It's like two lenses that we're looking through everything with. So we're looking at, does this political decision, does this issue, how do we love God and how do we love other people? How do we love people as ourselves, love our neighbors as well? And a lot of our political ideas and strategies and things are really looking at ways that we love others and are protecting the common good. And so when we're looking through these lenses, hopefully we're all looking through the same lenses. And where we may change or divide or disagree is how we go about loving our neighbor and loving God as a nation and in our politics. And so let's take this a step further. One of the things we know, and this is true of every church that I've been a part of throughout my entire life, every denomination I've been a part of, we have faithful Christians, faithful followers of Jesus on both sides of every issue, on both sides of every, both sides representing both parties. That's true of our church here. That's true of every church in our nation as well. There's always variances in those, sta- in those perspectives. Uh, Tim Keller wrote an article in New York Times entitled, How Do Christians Fit Into the part- Two-Party System? They Don't, is the title. He shares an experience of a, a devout Presbyterian man who wanted to travel to explore his Scottish roots in Scotland and visit the Presbyterian church in Scotland. And so when that gentleman went to Scotland, he discovered that there were very devout uh, Christians in Scotland, and they, were, they kept the Sabbath. They didn't do anything on the Sabbath on Sundays, and uh, they were very devout in prayer life and Bible study. And yet politically, he discovered that they were socialist in their politics. So he came back to the U.S. realizing that you can have differing perspectives on politics and still be a Christian. Uh, Tim Keller put it this way about that example he used in the article. He says, he realized that thoughtful Christians, all trying to obey God's call, could reasonably appear at different places on the political spectrum with loyalties to different political strategies. And this is true. We can disagreement, most of our disagreements usually come in the issue of political strategies, not the call of God. So this is a different layer that we're dealing with. So one of the things we're talking about today is what does it look like then if when we're in disagreement or there is division, what's our response as Christians? What's our response as faithful followers of Jesus? And James, the book of James, which we started out with this morning, we're going to jump to some verses that help us with some of that wisdom that we can ask God for today about politics and how we respond. And there are very three simple points, and you'll that'll be evident here, but James is a book about wisdom and Christian maturity and what it looks like to be in healthy community. So that's where we're going to look today. So here's the first point today. Very simple, easy to remember. You probably don't even have to write it down. Point number one, listen. That's it. Listen. We need to listen and seek to understand one another better. We need to take the time to start with listening. James 1.19 says this, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, 
slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. We, in our world today, based on our division, we seem to be getting this reversed. We're actually seems to be, we're quick to get angry and slow to listen. We're mixing the order up. It's not that anger is a problem. In fact, God's angry with the brokenness in our world as well. But we're not starting with seeking to understand first before we become angry. And our immediate response and our immediate reaction now is anger, frustration, lashing out. And we see this in all various parts of our lives and our society. One of the things that I hear from people uh, that say, and we hear this often in, in, the, in the Christian world, is uh, to endorse anger is this idea that, well, Jesus went into the temple and turned over the tables. Jesus got angry. Yes, Jesus did get angry. And yet I, we would suggest that Jesus is a great example of someone who is quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This is not Jesus's position all the time. And this is one of very few incidents where he does get angry in the Gospels. So let's unpack that a little bit. Let's remember the context of what was happening for Jesus. So Jesus, the first time, when was the first time Jesus ever went to the temple? The first time we know that Jesus went to the temple that is in the Gospels is that he was 12 years old. His parents left them at the temple. They forgot him there. They had to go back and find him. And where do they find Jesus? He's at the feet of the teachers, the religious leaders of the temple. He's learning from them. He's also teaching them. He's having conversation with them. He's dialoguing with the religious community of his day. That's his first thing. He was quick to listen, to learn, to talk, to dialogue, right? He starts at age 12 there. For the next 19 years, so think about this. So he doesn't go into the temple and overturn the tables till 19 years later. Every year he's going to the temple. He is spending time at the temple and a part of the religious community. And he's seeing this practice over that time period. And it's not till 19 years later that he actually expresses his anger. So what about you? What about me? How, off, how long do we wait before we express our anger. Do we wait 19 years? Jesus is a great example of someone who was quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. He took him 19 years before he expressed it. And that's true. Much of his teaching is around what we do with our anger and how not to express anger in a way that does harm to other people and damage them, whether verbally or physically. So there's a lot of anger out there in this. And part of it is, is that James is saying, let's not presume that our self-righteous anger is God's anger. Let's not presume that I've got it all figured out. There's a great phrase that I practice, that we all practice, and we've mentioned this before. There's a great phrase that says, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. That's a great way to get around some of those presumptions in ourselves, in our own self-righteous anger that we're not to harm others with. One thing about the human condition, though, is that when we are angry and we are frustrated or we have our views or we have our political positions, is that we have a tendency as human beings to only listen to the side of the argument that we want to hear. 2 Timothy 4.3 reminds us of this. He's, 2 Timothy says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching, they will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. 
They will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. You know, fake news, mythology, conspiracy. And they'll just listen to what they want to hear. We all do that. We all are susceptible to this, and we're all doing this to a certain degree. Uh, Here's another thing, a statistic about Notice the news sources that you and I watch. What are the go-to news sources for our political news? According to the Pew Research Center, we, uh, 93% of Republicans watch Fox News as a main source of news, and then the list goes down to other sources, and 95% of Democrats watch MSNBC for their political news. So you can see, again, the division here, and part of the division is staying within those places where we're only hearing what we want to hear, what our itching ears want to hear when it comes to politics. We're doing this. We're doing the same thing. A study recently uh, done by the Proceedings of National Academy of Science, they did a study, and it's not a conclusive, all-conclusive study. What they discovered, though, is through the study was that when someone posts a political position or opinion on social media, it doesn't bring people with them. It doesn't actually bring people to their point of view. It actually creates more polarization. And when people read that post, people will immediately disagree with it and actually move more into their position or what they want to hear or what they want to argue. And so social media is actually exacerbating and to some degree this polarization. And so if you, if you and I think that when we go post something on social media that it's going to change people's hearts and minds, the study says that's not necessarily happening. In fact, it may actually be creating more division. So think about that. If you want to see the study, it's out there. Again, Proceedings of National Academy of Science just recently came out that more study needs to be done. Here's the thing. You know how to counter do we, the studies after study after study has revealed is that the only way we'll heal division is by having positive relationships, healthy relationships with people on the other side. So we actually have to build relationship and build bridges. If reconciliation is to happen, if restoration is to happen, we're actually going to have to work at building healthy, positive relationships with people we may disagree with. And that's part of what James is getting, moving us towards. If you want help with your news sources, there's a great website called allsides.com. And what allsides.com does is it takes an article and it will post an article on any news issue or political issue. And it will tell you and rate the article, whether it's left-leaning, left-center, centrist, uh, right-leaning, or right or to the right. And then this way, you can read different articles. And sometimes they're from different sources. Sometimes a source from the center is actually left and so forth. And they rate each article. And you can read from both sides of every issue and both sides of every story to get a viewpoint, differing viewpoints to maybe help come together and have a bigger picture of what's really happening. Because we need to hear from each other and we need to read widely and really get to the facts and the truth rather than the spin, whatever the latest spin is in the media, which is what the media is designed to do. So point number one, listen. Guess what point number two is? Listen. (laughs) Listen to other viewpoints, right? Listen to what other people have to say. James gives us some advice on who to listen to and not show favoritism. James uh, chapter two, verses five to seven says this. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Let's remember, we're brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? 
Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? This isn't just an issue of economics. This is an issue of faith. What James is saying is look not just to the economics of a person, look to their faith or faithlessness. And where is their faith and is the wisdom? Notice he uses this phrase, dear brothers and sisters, often in the book as well. We've heard it, we'll hear it again. This idea that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to actually be listening to other viewpoints on other sides of the issue, particularly the poor. Because the poor are often the ones that are most affected by political decisions. They're the ones that sometimes are mostly directly impacted by some of our political decisions. And so we need to spend time listening to their point of view as well, and not just the point of view of the wealthy. And if you're reading anything into this about political candidates, please do not. Both candidates before us today are both wealthy. I'm wealthy. Most of us listening to this are wealthy. And so we can't assume. We need to spend time listening to those people in poverty, in struggling, and how do we help them because they're part of our community and part of the common good we seek. This is also a hallmark of free Methodism itself, to look to the needs of the poor. What does this look like when you are in a position to advocate? One of the uh, stories I would share with you, I may have shared it with some of you before, is a story of actually when I served on the board. Some of you know I served on a board to end homelessness appointed by the county executive as a county board. So got to know county council members, got to get involved with county local politics. And one of the issues on the table in the county was affordable housing. And one of the reasons we were looking at affordable housing was we knew that the, one of the best ways to prevent homelessness in our community was to create affordable housing. And we're not talking about low-income housing. That was included as well. But like, where do our teachers live? Where do our firefighters live? Where do our public servants live? Where do our, our, our civic uh, uh, governance people live. Where do these people live? They, if they can't live in our community, that may be an issue. They're having to travel in from outside of our community to serve our community. So our servant leaders in our community could not afford to live in the community. So we needed to create affordable housing. So along comes a developer uh, from another state that wants to develop luxury apartments within our community. And so we're talking hundreds, possibly thousands of luxury apartment units. There were multiple sites, multiple buildings. I think there were five different sites for this. And so because I was on the board and a pastor in the community, I was invited to a meeting with the developer, um, invited to the developer's uh, home office and to see the vis- hear the vision for their luxury apartment complex. Uh, and so they wanted me to, to basically hear their vision and their direction for luxury apartments. So I gathered in, uh, this was one of many focus groups, and I was about 12, 15 people in the room, and they put out a nice spread of drinks and fine food and gourmet everything, and you know, it was a really nice spread, and so I certainly uh, enjoyed the food that we had there, and they gave us out these nice color packets of the, the vision and the master plan for these luxury apartment buildings, and we sat around the table, and the developer went through them and cast the vision for this in the community and how wonderful this would be for the community, and everybody's like, yeah, this is a great idea. Everybody's on board, and there was just a part of me 
that said, I got to raise the question. I got to bring the voice of the poor, the homeless, the teachers that couldn't afford to live in these apartments to the table. So I raised the question, just a question. I said, what about affordable housing? How many units of affordable housing will you be building in our community? Oh, silence. And in that moment, I realized I was the only one in the room wanting to raise the question. I was the only one in the room trying to advocate for others who weren't in the room. And that's part of our role sometimes when we are in those positions is to bring the viewpoint of other people who aren't at the table to the table. And I remember how alone I felt walking out of that room. It wasn't, it was a, that, that tension in that room just went up. I was not well liked at that point, And I walked out of that room pretty discouraged, to be honest with you. But we need to hear the other viewpoints. That developer needed to hear another viewpoint as they plan for the good of our community, so to speak. And we did begin to push the issue of affordable housing in our community and to press those developers for more affordable units in our community. We needed to do that. There are times when we need to bring those positions, those other viewpoints into people's view, even into our own view, and we need to listen to those other viewpoints. I did not arrive at that viewpoint until I started talking to people who were struggling with homelessness. And so when we're willing to listen to the poor, when we're willing to listen to others around us and their viewpoints, then we can get a better picture for our whole community. The other thing that James says, so if you got the first two points, listen. Second point, listen. Guess what the third point is? Listen, right? And in this way, we actually need to listen for compassion for others, for love for others, to assume the best in others. Uh, James 3, 7 and 9 says this, People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it is praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. You see, we curse, and what leads to our cursing is sometimes we're assuming the negative about them. We're assuming the worst in that other person because of their political position or who they voted for or whatever they believe about this particular issue or not issue. And then we, because they have that viewpoint, we layer on a lot of assumptions about them and we judge them. And that leads to cursing. In fact, Jesus very was, was very clear about not judging each other, not cursing each other in our anger not going around and judging each other in our anger, not going around taking the speck out of someone else's eye and ignoring the log in our own eye. Jesus taught many things about not judging and assuming the worst in others when it comes through our anger. How does this happen? Well, this is actually happening in our brains. Part of what's happening in our brains is, some, brains is something called the gap. There's a gap that exists between what I know and what I don't know. And so when we're ever in a position where we know a little bit about a person and we know maybe a few facts about them, but there's a lot we don't know about them. We don't really get to know them, but we take those few little facts, let's say whether they're Republican or Democrat, that could be one fact, and then we fill in the gap with whatever we think of Republicans or whatever we think of Democrats. So we fill that gap in with our assumptions. This is actually where bias comes from, where prejudice comes from. 
And so we fill that gap in. And what are we filling the gap with? This, let's take, for example, you're up on top of Queen Anne, you're looking for a parking spot, and you're uh, at top of Queen Anne, you have to uh, back your car into the parking spot. There are angled slots, but you can't go in front for it. You actually have to go out into traffic and back in. And so I'm waiting, not just you, but this is a real life experience. So I'm waiting and I'm waiting for a person in a big jacked up four wheel drive king cab pickup truck to park their truck in one of these small spaces up on top of Queen Anne, right? And so, and they got tinted windows, so I don't even know who's driving. I can't see who's driving, but I just see this big old pickup truck and I'm waiting for them trying to figure out how to back into a spot. And to be honest, you know, I'm a little impatient as most of us are as drivers, right? So let me ask this question. All we know, put yourself in that position. All you know is that this person is driving a white, large pickup truck. So let me ask some questions. What are your assumptions about their education level? What are your assumptions about their political preference? What are your assumptions about their gender? What are your assumptions about their skin color? What are all those assumptions when you see that all you know is that one piece of information, white pickup truck, what do you fill the gap with? What do you fill in that gap with? Now, our brain does that sometimes without even thinking, without even really being conscious of it. We fill the gap in with our prejudices, our assumptions, and sometimes what we're doing, especially when we're impatient, is we're filling it with negativity. So I know what my assumptions were. What were your assumptions? And you don't have to chat about it. You'll say it out loud. I can tell you as I waited, the person turned off the truck, got out, and it was a African-American female that got out of the truck, which surprised me, to be honest with you. Those were not my assumptions driving that pickup truck. So here, notice how that works. Notice how often we can take a little bit of information and assume a lot more about a person or a situation. We do that politically as well. We're doing that. We're filling the gap with negativity rather than assuming the best in one another. And compassion, what I think James is saying is not curse. Let's not fill that gap with cursing or things that will lead to cursing. Let's find ways to listen and fill that gap with compassion, with assuming better things for people, assuming that let's get to know this person better because we might find that we actually have more in common than we do separate or dividing us. And so the only way to heal the divide, again, is to build positive relationships with people who think differently than we do. John Wesley said in his three simple rules for life, one of the first rules was do no harm. Verbally, physically, do no harm. That's a hallmark of our faith. So are we asking good questions to clarify, to understand the others around us? Are we listening for their viewpoints and listening for what really makes them tick? And are we assuming the best in them? So if you got the three points today, they're this. Listen, listen, listen. Listen to get more understanding. Listen to other viewpoints. Listen to build compassion and positive relationship. So I'm, we know the election's coming up, November 3rd. We're all going to go to the polls. We'll elect a president. We'll elect a governor. We'll elect other leaders in politics and politicians to govern us. We'll exercise our democratic rights in the process. And you may be wondering, I need some wisdom, right? Maybe you came to the sermon saying, tell me who to vote for. We're not doing that. 
But we do know from James that if we pray and ask God for wisdom, God will give us wisdom. And James goes on in chapter 3 to describe the wisdom that God gives us. Chapter 3, 17 to 18 says this, But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. You hear that? The wisdom from God is peace-loving, is merciful, is full of good deeds. It shows no favoritism. It's sincere. It's genuine. That's God's wisdom. So no matter what happens on November 3rd, I hope that's our response as Christians, that we're peace-loving and merciful no matter who ends up being president, that that's our response to what happens. For now, for the next few weeks, research. Find, listen to both sides. Find the facts. Discover the context. Understand as much as you can about the issues. Do the homework. And then pray about it. Ask God about wisdom, about how to put leaders into offices to represent us. And ask for wisdom about how to address those issues. And then vote. Go to the polls. Vote. Exercise our civic duty. And no matter what happens, though, as Christians, let us remember that Jesus is our Savior, not the President. Let's pray together.